Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled Worship With Ourselves was given by Darren Roundson and is the fifth and final in our series, Worship. All right, that's refreshing. Hey, grab a Bible. Um, we got a lot to get through this morning. I'm excited to finish our series. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And uh, I'll throw one to the first person that needs it if you need a Bible. Who's got their hand up? All right, there you go. You're first. Sorry. Sorry, ladies. Sorry. Um, okay, <clears throat> go to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we are finishing a series on worship. Wow. This, everyone can see this, right? Can we applaud Larry? He's not here, but that's... And Greg and everyone that set that up. For those of you that are new, our old kind of thing was like behind the speaker and only like three people on this side could see it. So it was always ambiguous to say, hey, look at the screen, and it didn't work. Um, it didn't work out. We're finishing a series on worship. Uh, we did a five-week series. This is the fifth week. Next week, we're starting back in Mark, and we're going to continue our kind of adventure through the book of Mark, looking at the kingdom of God. But to finish this series, I'm going to conclude with a topic that's difficult to discuss as a pastor. But it's something that Jesus talks about more than anything else outside of the kingdom of God. He talks about money. So we looked five, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, at Romans chapter 12. And we said the goal of, of us as disciples, as followers, is to learn to offer our lives back to God. That that becomes our worship. It's not just coming and singing songs. It's, it's recognizing that in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that He's done for us, in view of the, the cross, in view of, of the, uh, the forgiveness of sins, the redemption, how we're justified, everything He's done for us, in view of all that, the only response we have is to offer our energy, our time, our intellect, our emotional capacities, our talents, our strengths, our jobs, our lives, our money, our finances, our stuff, back to God. And what I want to say today is this, that we need to learn as followers to worship God with our stuff. Whatever that, whatever that word means to you, our cars, our, 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 our extra stuff at home, our finances, our bank accounts, our money. We need to learn to worship God with our stuff. Otherwise, we will end up worshiping our stuff. Sound good? Matthew 6, um, verse uh, 19. Jesus, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do this morning. Rather than um, just kind of focus on one text, I'm going to give you four different pictures of this topic, of learning to worship God with your stuff, and then we'll land and, um, and we'll continue to worship and maybe um, we'll, we'll practice it. So, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon where he's discussing to his followers or anyone that would want to follow him. Hey guys, this is what it means to be my disciple. So Jesus is, is kind of breaking down his version or his understanding of Torah, his way of life. If you want to follow Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is the perfect understanding that this is what it means to be his disciple. He's actually expecting that we can do this stuff. And so in, in Matthew chapter 6, he gets into this transition where he's going he's gonna, to um, encourage his followers to choose what reality they live in. So he's, he's gone through all this stuff. He's talking about uh, his disciples. If, if you're going to follow him, 
You need to learn to devote your time, your energy, um, your life to this thing called the kingdom of God. And so Jesus comes to a point, and we're going to look at treasures, where he says, hey, if you're my disciple, you have to choose. You live in the reality of the kingdom of God, that that is ultimate. Or you live in the reality of the kingdom of the world. He says, as, as a disciple, you can't live in both because there's two different gods. And you will end up being anxious. Or in the Latin word for anxious is you will end up being pulled or torn apart. And so Jesus addresses some of the core issues of, of following him. And he goes right for the heart every single time. Literally, he goes for the heart. And so we read in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 19. Jesus says, uh, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus uses this metaphor called treasure to describe the things that humans do naturally. We value stuff. We value things. He's not just referring to money or finances, although that's what he has to, he's talking about too. But what Jesus is talking about, he's saying as a people, as, as people on earth, we all value stuff. We all value things. It's not just money. It's reputation. We value identity. We value our jobs. We value relationships. We value security, comfort. Think about what that looks like in your life. Just ask yourself, where does your time go? Where does your thoughts go? What are the things that you value in your life? And Jesus says that treasuring stuff is okay, but as a disciple, we don't treasure the things that will inevitably end in decay. We don't treasure the things of the kingdom of the world. As a disciple, we have to learn to treasure, to value, to put our investments in things that will last for eternity. So as a disciple, as we start wrestling with what does it mean to follow Jesus, we, we, have to, we come to this crossroad where we have to decide, are we going to value the things of the kingdom or are we going to value the things of the earth? And then he says this. He says, the things that you treasure or the things that you value are a good indicator of the condition of your heart. Now notice this. Jesus doesn't say your treasures, um, your heart follows your treasure. He's not saying that. He's saying that your treasures follow your heart. In other words, it's like this. If you look underneath the bank account number, the money, the job, the image, the security, underneath that will reveal your heart. And so what Jesus is doing for his disciples is he's simply making them aware of where their heart is. And so I just throw this out there. As we learn to worship God with our stuff, with our hearts, with our finances, with the things that we value, where is our treasure? And if that's a difficult question to answer, why don't you ask this? Where, where do you spend most of your money? Where do you spend most of your time? Who in your life gets more energy? You can just keep going down the list. What preoccupies your mind when you wake up? How much does that job define you? What do you value? What are the treasures? Go to Acts chapter 2. We're going to jump to another illustration. And hopefully they'll all connect. They did to me. But uh, 
That's fine. You guys with me right now? You guys good? I'm feeling good. I like this one service thing. It's fun. Acts chapter 2. So, Jesus is with his followers for a while. Um, Obviously, he died. And obviously, he resurrected from the dead. That's awesome. Right? The resurrection. It changed the universe. We're all here early on Sunday morning because Jesus raised from the dead. It changes the way we wake up in the mornings on Sunday. It changes everything. So the followers of Christ recognize that Jesus resurrected from the dead and they begin to live out kind of their faith in this new reality, this alternate or ultimate universe. And so the followers of Christ form the church in Acts chapter 2. And, and this is when the, the Holy Spirit comes down. And you can go to the next slide. And what happens is that the, the Holy Spirit fills this community of believers, 120 of them at the time. And then 3,000 people are saved already. It's a mega megachurch. Um, and, and what we see is that the church begins to try to figure out how to live and worship and, and be together without a manual. They weren't given instructions. This is how you be church. Their goal is to be Christ on earth. To live as the embodiment, the flesh and blood of Jesus as a community, as followers of Christ. So they begin to work out what this means. And we pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Um, uh, Just this great snapshot. Luke is writing kind of an account of, of the and what the church does and, and kind of the, the journey of how the church was formed. And, and he gives us as, a, as some of his own personal testimony, but also what, he's, what he heard from eyewitnesses. And um, what, 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 what he does throughout the book of Acts, what Luke does, is he gives you kind of literary snapshots. This is kind of what the church looked like from a distance. If you were going to define it, he kind of just gives you like one paragraph of this is what the church was doing. And so we pick up, we're going to read two of them. In verse 42... Luke is just describing what this kind of messy explosion, people full of the Holy Spirit, believing in the resurrection of Christ. This is what they do. This is what characterizes them. 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread together. They ate meals. Um, They ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number of those who were being saved. Go to Acts 4, verse um, 32. Acts chapter 4. This is the same thing. Luke is trying to describe what's going on. With this church, what does it look like? What, what are these people trying to do? In verse 32, he says this. Now the whole group of those who believed were one in heart and soul. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the gave the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds 
of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. So Luke gives you a snapshot of the first church. No manuals. They just get together, and they're trying to figure out how do we live out our faith in this new reality that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And what the early church is marked by is by this unbelievable, unbelievable sense that the church shares generously. That they had all things in common. I want, I want to say a couple of things. The church did not sell everything they owned and lived in common housing. They didn't live in communal living. They didn't sell everything. What, what was said in Acts 2 and 4 was that those that had something shared with those that had nothing. That's it. This is some of the most subversive stuff you've ever think you, you could ever imagine. The church is trying to, what, how do we live out Christ? They simply say, well, I have, you don't, let's share. Is that compelling? That that's just blows my mind that the early church was marked by this radical sense of generosity, that, that they saw that the brothers and sisters in the faith that didn't have, that that wasn't okay because we represent Christ on earth, that if someone's in need, we are the answer to that prayer. That's what the early church did. They were marked by this sense of radical generosity. I've heard a story, another pastor at another church, and he tells a story of a family who uh, uh, the father lost a job and they, during the economy, and they weren't able to provide enough food for their kids. Another family hears about this, that this is going on in their church. And so the, the, the family that hears about the family in need, they walk up to their door, knock on the door and say, it is unacceptable that you cannot provide for your family. Come into our car. They drive to one of those massive stores that you get just piles and piles of stuff. They say to them as they walk in, um, it is not okay for you guys to be in need. We'll provide groceries for you until it's, until it's no longer an issue for you. And they walked out with $900 worth of grocery and continued to do that until the guy got a job. Same church, um, same pastor telling this story. He tells a story of, of a mom whose father, or um, a mom, I'm sorry, a mom of three kids. Her husband divorced her. She, was, she lost her home. And as, the day she's moving everything into the trucks, this family heard about this somewhere along the, on, uh, along the road and said, this is unacceptable. Um, they knock on the door right when she's ready to leave and close the door. They, she says, uh, this family says, let me take you around the block. I want to drive you somewhere. They drive around the block where they, they, they see a, a sold sign next door. And they said, um, we just bought you this house. Can I show you inside? The church. Radical generosity. Sharing stuff. I was in India and... Uh, I love India because it's serious. It's just, there are parts of India that are so biblical. It's like, it's like going back to the first century. I was, we were doing baptisms, and this particular baptism, we baptized 300 people. And the thing is, we go to this, this river that was actually like a pond because it was drought season. And so you're just floating, you know, stuff's just floating in this stuff. You know, you're like baptizing and what, making sure stuff's not coming on their head. And uh, terrible. But also, this is the location where the Hindus throw the, the ashes of their dead ancestors and relatives. So we're stepping barefoot on uh, clay jars 
and where, where this has been a place of worship for the Hindu people. And uh, there we are, dunking people. And, and, and what, along the way, we find out that we actually have to give new names to these people because some of these people coming up have names like uh, a Hindu god, and so they, they take on a new name. Or they'll have names like cat vomit or uh, dog feces because the way they think in that culture is the gods, the Hindu gods, will just pass over those children when they're born because they're named when they're born. Uh, if they have a horrible name like that, so the gods won't, won't come after them. So here we are, and after, you know, the 17th John, hey, your name's John, or, you know, you run out of names, like, whatever. Uh, we do all the baptisms, and then we go to take communion. This woman dressed in um, just fine clothes was sitting, and she wasn't sitting on the ground like everyone else because she was in the upper caste system. And she stops right before we go into taking communion, and she says, I want to accept Jesus. And this woman... Um, accepts Jesus, gets a new name. Um, Suresh, the guy I was with, says, your name's going to be Lydia. And without even knowing anything about Jesus, she says, I want to give you land to build a church. She literally gave equivalent of 14 acres where they build a church on her property for her village. That is the church. A church that shares generously. Amen? All right, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to show you this morning that you can be poor but really rich. And you can be rich but really poor. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church. This is a church that he planted. Um, And this is the second letter discussing a variety of topics. But one of the main reasons Paul writes 2 Corinthians is to let the Corinthian church know that he's coming through Corinth expecting for them to participate in what he calls the collection of saints or the collection of the Lord's people. So he's writing them to make sure they know that he's coming through so that they'll give money to what is known as the collection of saints. What is the collection of saints? Well, I'm glad you asked. In order to go back, let's go back to Acts 2. Stay in 2 Corinthians, but I'm going to take you there on this great journey. The church is born in Jerusalem. Jesus says in um, Acts 1.8, Hey guys, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They wait. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. You keep going along. It's still in Jerusalem. Acts 6. It's still stuck in Jerusalem. By Acts 7, there's persecution. Persecution starts spreading the church. By Acts chapter 8, the church begins to spread. The gospel moves to Samaria to parts of Judea and to the ends of the earth. Well, let's go to the map. Now, you can barely see this. So the Jerusalem is the far bottom right corner. That's where the church is born. And then the church begins to spread. It goes up the beach and north. So what we read in all, all throughout Acts, you're going to see this. So by Acts chapter 11, um, the church is in Antioch, which is kind of, do you see, uh, to the right above Syria? That's Antioch. It's in Cyprus. It keeps going north. It gets by Acts uh, 13. It's in Iconium. By Acts 14, do you see where it says Asia? Um, It it keeps going up. It it goes up to what says Macedonia, but it it gets to Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea. It gets to Corinth and Athens by Acts chapter 17. So the church that started in Jerusalem explodes, crossing boundaries of, of tribe, tongue, Nation, customs, Greeks and Jews, men and women, slaves, free people are getting the gospel. It's just exploding. But back in Jerusalem, 
stuff starts happening that caused some of these missionaries to think about how do we support them. In Jerusalem, we know that there's a great persecution. Okay, so the first thing that's going on in Jerusalem is people are getting killed for the faith. So we read in Acts 21, Paul gets dragged out of the synagogue. The second thing that's going on is around 46 AD, there's a great famine. And, and because of overpopulation, people in Jerusalem are starving. Brothers and sisters of the faith are hungry. The third thing that's going on in Jerusalem is that overtaxation. There's taxation from the Roman system and the Jewish system. So the apostles and missionaries say, hey, I know what we'll do. We're going to plant churches, and we're going to ask every church to share or to offer a collection of money to support their brothers and sisters across the world that started this movement. That is what we call the collection of the Lord's people or the collection of saints. You read about it in Galatians, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. So Paul is writing with the purpose of letting the Corinthian church know that he's coming through to, to kind of collect the money so that he can take that money back to Jerusalem. But something happened along the way. Something kind of uh, important happened, and Paul wants Corinth to know what happened because if he gets to, let's just read this and I'll tell you what happened. Second Corinthians 8. I love this. This is a beautiful passage. Remember, Paul's having to do something difficult. He's having to say, hey guys, remember you promised to give some money. You haven't got, got it together. Let's get your act together. But instead of saying it like that, he, re, he starts off by telling a story. He says this, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. So Paul's writing to Corinth, a wealthy church. And he's, he's letting them know, he's, he wants, you know, you promised to bring some money, you promised to participate, but you haven't got the money together. But he wants them to know he's coming, but he also wants them to know that something in Macedonia happened. And he calls it God's grace. Here's, what's, here's what happened in Macedonia. Macedonia was extremely poor. They were suffering in their own rights. They had such poverty that Paul, when he plants church all throughout Macedonia, he doesn't invite them or even ask for them to participate in the collection of the Lord's people, in the collection of the saints. Because if he would have done that, that would have been uncomfortable. So he doesn't burden them with that. But the Macedonian churches hear that there was a collection going on. They hear that where the movement started, all the way back in Jerusalem, where this whole thing went down, that their brothers and sisters are suffering, and they say to Paul, we want in on that. And Paul, rather than, than telling the Corinthian church, hey guys, get your act together, I'm going to throw law at you, I'm your apostle, rather than shaming the Corinthian church, rather than comparing them to the, the Thessalonica sister, he's saying, guys, let me tell you a story about God's grace. He attributes the willingness that the Macedonians have to give as a grace from God. This was given to them from God for their brothers and sisters across the way. So we break it down a little bit. It says, listen to the language. It's beautiful. Severe affliction, their abundant joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed 
and a wealth of generosity. Their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Poverty and wealth. What does this say to us today? What does this mean? What is Paul doing by using those two words together? I think what Paul's trying to say is this, that you can barely have any money at all and be rich. You could have no money at all, but your spirit you can be bursting, exploding with the wealth of God that you are overflowing with generosity. And I think the reverse is true as well. That you can be rich, but really poor. That you could have loads and loads of money, but your spirit's so bound and tight that you are really poor. I think what Paul's getting at is that money and generosity have, are two different things. I don't think it means um, that being, uh, being rich has anything to do with a dollar amount. I don't think being rich is having a lot. I think being rich is being aware of how much you have. Do you have breath today? Did you, did you walk here on your own two feet? Are you going home to a house? Do you have a place to sleep tonight? Do you have, do you have health? Do you have family? It's learning to see how much you have and just recognizing that. And offering that back to God. That's what it means to be rich. And I love this, guys. That the, the Macedonians are so poor that Paul doesn't even include them in it. But then they hear that there's somebody suffering across the way. And they say, no, there's something to be done. And we're going to do something about it. That is the church. Amen? That's when you say, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of a church that does that. That gives to people across the way in the midst of our own poverty. It's a grace of God. I, and I, I, love, um, I love that line too, uh, where he says, uh, they gave according to their means and even beyond. Paul's saying, man, these guys have nothing, but they gave even more than what I thought they could give. What does that say? To us. We're capable of extraordinary generosity. We are the wealthiest nation in the world, the most technologically advanced nation in the world. If you have a refrigerator or a car, you are in the top 2% of the entire world's wealth. How does that define you if you know that you are wealthier than 98% of 6 billion plus people? How do you see yourself? Have you surrendered your finances to God? Even if you think you're poor, God is capable of overflowing with a wealth of generosity. Amen? Go to Luke chapter 18. I'm going to try to wrap this up. Um, Luke 18. You can go to the next slide, too. Um, Jesus starts off with treasure. And then uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we see him confronted by... This, uh, my Bible says, a rich young ruler. Let's read this and I'll explain what's going on here. Um, verse 18 of chapter 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus said to him, No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Um, you shall honor your father and mother. And, and let's just pause there. If, if you go too fast through this, you miss what Jesus is doing. In the first century, if you wanted to know where a rabbi stood in general, where, where, where his kind of beliefs kind of narrowed down to, what was kind of his mission statement, you would ask him this question, something like this. Rabbi, what do I do to inherit the world that is to come? This is a common question rabbis would have, would have been asked. It would be like, hey, what's your, what's your nonprofit statement of belief or your vision statement? So people would ask Jesus this all the time, I'm, I'm sure, but this is a specific account where, where this man asks Jesus, hey, how do I in- inherit eternal life? And Jesus begins, um, and, and if you were a rabbi, normally you would, you would give your, your own answer. Maybe it is give to the poor. Maybe it's pray more. Maybe it's read the Torah. Maybe it's some other thing. But either way, every rabbi had their own individual slant on what they interpreted the Torah to be and how to in- inherit eternal life. So Jesus begins by listing the Ten Commandments. Now, every Jewish boy and girl would have known what the Ten Commandments are or were, and Jesus skips over the first few, which have to do with your relationship to God, and goes right to your relationship with others. And he begins to list all of them out, but he leaves out one. He leaves out, thou shall not covet. Because I think there's, there's something going on that we need, to, we need to learn. We need to recognize that every single person is on their own journey of faith. And Jesus leaves out, thou shall not covet, because apparently he knows what this guy's issue is. You see, coveting is what happens when you're not content with what you have. And you are owned by your stuff, or by the, you are owned by the stuff that you don't have. So Jesus leaves out, thou shalt not covet, um, and, and this guy, and he continues the story, and uh, the guy says, I, I have kept all these since my youth. He's a liar. Um, there, there is still one thing lacking. Um, Jesus heard this, and he said, there's still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Brothers and sisters, this is not a law. I want to say right now, Jesus does not condemn the rich or the wealthy. Jesus actually tells people to be good with their money, to be shrewd managers, to use their money for good. He actually is comfortable with the rich. How do you think he got a tomb? Poor people did not have a tomb when you died. That was his rich friend Joseph. Joseph had, or Jesus had wealthy friends. He doesn't condemn money. But what he is interested in is getting people where they are. So I want to make this point. The guy was owned by his stuff. And for him, where he was at, the only logical next step that Jesus saw in his heart was to invite this man to the next step, which was to sell his possessions and come follow follow Jesus because he was wealthy. So if you picture this, the dominant metaphor for faith all throughout the Old and New Testament is um, the metaphor of journey. It's, it's, if you read uh, the, the dominant paradigm in the, in the Bible is that we are people on a journey. We're going somewhere. It's about growth. It's about expansion. It's about journeying along, following Jesus. So, so faith is not stagnant. You don't just get everything clean, cleaned up before you come to Christ. No, Jesus meets you where you are. And, and there's a slide for this. This might help you. Um, so this is my great graphic design. Um, brilliant. Um, it's Patent, Darren. Um, so, 
So, and, and it goes past our alphabet, but if you can imagine, you meet Christ, and the journey is not just in our life here on earth, but it will be a journey for eternity. You guys with me? So you start here, for example. This man is somewhere along his journey following, following God, obeying the commandments, and Jesus recognizes that this guy is in bondage to his stuff. And the only logical step for his journey is to sell that stuff and come follow Jesus. It's the next step for him on his faith journey. That we are all people on a journey. Some of you are here for the first time. And the fact that you've recognized that maybe there is a God and you come to a church that's in a bar, that is a great step for you. And we want to cheer that for you this morning. Some of you are here, and when we talk about giving generously, you say, yeah, I give 10%, Darren. And I'm here to say, well, that's not a law. That doesn't even mark the New Testament church. 10% is an Old Testament fact, and in fact... If you really want to break it down, it's 23.3% according to Levitical law. So you go for it. Live by the law. Some of you are here and you're thinking, Darren, I got this thing down. I give 10% like clockwork. I want to say the journey of faith doesn't end with a number. Generosity is not about a number. It's about a heart. Maybe it's 11% today. Some of you are here and in your faith journey and you're recognizing, man, we talk about being owned by stuff and all you think about is you're in debt over the fact that you've got to buy the designer jeans or you're waiting every six months for the new product to come out that you can purchase on your, on your American Express or maybe that you've defined yourself by the things that you own or by the number in the bank account. Maybe that's where you are on your journey. The next step is simply to surrender and say, God, I don't even know where to begin, but this is yours. Maybe it's not getting the second bedroom. Maybe it's sharing the other bedroom you have. Maybe some of you are, are here and, and you're like, Darren, I don't, I don't even have, have money uh, to pay bills. I'm going into debt every week. Well, maybe for you, the step this morning, this journey of faith is for you to say, actually, guys, this is a safe place. I'm in need. Maybe it's you laying down your pride and saying, I need help. And someone else is along their journey saying, hey, I actually have what you need. Let's do this together. We don't need a forum, a formula, a system to learn how to share. We learned it in preschool, some of us. Maybe some of you need to dive into community and just say, hey, this is what I have. This is what I need. What can we do together? Brothers and sisters, as we talk about worship, as we talk about living in the reality of the kingdom of God, that we first have to treasure the things that will last for eternity. From there, we recognize that as a church, we are to embody Christ on earth, and we do that with every aspect of our life, including our stuff. That in fact, some of us are here, and we need to be awakened to the fact that you could be really poor, but so wealthy with generosity. And we also have to recognize that it will be different for every one of us. That it's not about a law of 10%. It's about a heart of generosity. And maybe some of you have been a part of our church and you've not given to us because because of some abuse of the past. And that's fine. But it's somewhere along the lines, you're going to be a part of a community. And what it takes to be a part of a community is that you share, you give, and you receive. 
I was talking to a friend this, about this earlier, and, and we were, he was just saying, this is so weird that you're talking about this, because I, I felt on my heart, like, every time I see that bucket come by, I, I just, I throw in scraps, and God put it on my heart that I want to give $20,000 this year. And that was his journey, and I'm like, awesome, cool. Generosity is the key, and guys, this little thing, this is... I think one of the most subversive, rebellious acts to the kingdom of this world. This little jar um, that represents us saying to the God of the world, actually, you don't define me. Actually, more is not better. Actually, my life is in some other God's hands and you can't even touch me. Every time we pass this around, it's not us trying to pay for programs, though that's part of it sometimes. It's us saying we are participating in the renewal of all things and we're doing it together. So we pass a bucket. We used to pass baskets, but some people in our community were in need and took stuff, so we passed buckets. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know what this represents to you, but maybe today this represents the next step. Maybe, maybe this represents you saying, I don't want my stuff to own me. Maybe this represents for you, for the first time, saying, I want to be a part of a community that learns how to share generously like the New Testament. And maybe for you, it's just a simple act of saying, I worship God of, of the kingdom, not the God of the world. Because if I don't worship God with my stuff, my stuff is what I'm worshiping. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Invite the worship team up. Invite the ushers to come up to you. Lord, you, um, it's funny, I, I recall in Paul's story, uh, you say the greatest act of generosity is Christ on the cross. And Lord, um, every single day, we sit under the grace You have given us. We sit under the lavish love You've given us. The fact that Your Son went through everything He did so that we could stand, stand here and worship and sing and possibly participate in the work that You have for us on earth. Lord, thank You for that. Lord, I thank You for the example You gave us of what life is really about. Lord, I thank You for a community that's willing to talk about money because You talked about it. So, Lord, I pray as we talk about money, not because we're in a deficit at all, but because we're interested in discipleship, because we're interested in worship. Lord, may we respond accordingly and beyond in your name. Amen. Hey, guys, why don't we do this? Why don't we, guys, why don't we stand? I want to I pass this over. I cultivate Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from The Garden, or if you would like to find out more about The Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.